0: coming up on the scott thompson home show podcast the u.s looking into the origins of covid 19 why is alberta reopening after having such a tough time quebec is looking to pass a motion which gives them more quebec how much are we paying for vaccines it's coming up on the scott thompson home show podcast today on the scott thompson show on 900 chml ready yep I'm
1: Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Lots of chatter on whether we should or should not be heading back to school this year. It's almost like watching a fight in the parking lot, except adults. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. here.
0: Scott Thompson. Good good afternoon. It is 1210. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Willerskin back at the station keeping the Scott Thompson home show. Between the pipes, how you doing? Uh beautiful day out there. Less humidity, too. Boy, does that sound like an old person? Uh, feel free to jump into the conversation we would love to hear from you lots of ways to do that lots of ways to reach us i want to play a report right now uh u.s president uh joe biden has ordered the intelligence community to redouble their efforts into the investigation of the origins of COVID 19 and where it it came from and how we got to where we are here is a report from the associated press
2: President Joe Biden has asked intelligence officials to double up efforts to find an answer to the origins, including investigating the possibility that it came from a Chinese laboratory. China's foreign ministry spokesperson said that Biden's order showed the U.S. does not care about facts or truth, nor is it interested in serious scientific origin tracing. China also fired back that the U.S. should also open itself up to investigations in its own labs, like the military's Fort Dietrich base. I'm Karen Chamas.
0: All right, let's bring in Elliot Tepper. I love when, you know, you accuse someone of something. Well, what about what you do? All right. Uh, Elliot Tepper, emeritus professor, of political science, Carleton University, and is with us now.
3: Elliot, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Uh, Thanks, Scott. I am, and I hope you're staying safe and everybody listening.
0: So we have already had an investigation into this or there was into the la, uh, into Wuhan and and what happened although uh, it appears that has created more questions than uh, it has answered so why the call for more now
3: Yes well that that first uh, investigation was done jointly between China and the WHO over January and February they reported in March and the report said basically well, it's highly unlikely anything escaped from a lab, so this, is, this was from wet markets. This is, this is animal to human transmission. But at the same time, right then, uh, the head of the WHO said, you know, we didn't really have the kind of access that we need. We want more transparency. That was then, and at that same time, in that same time period, uh, there were major scientists who signed a letter saying, hey, this wasn't adequate and Canada and the U.S. and a number of other states issued a a formal statement released by the U.S. uh, Department of State and us saying about the same thing, that uh, we aren't aren't happy with how this is going. Why is it back in the news now? For two reasons. One is that the uh, WHO is apparently about to launch a second stage of their investigation. So it's it's timely uh, to re-raise the issue. But also the Wall Street Journal came out with a report nobody had before saying that in November of last year. Remember all this broke in December? We didn't really get into news about it until March. In November, three scientists working at that Wuhan uh, lab came down with a mysterious uh, illness simultaneously and were taken to hospital. Then, So that's the two triggers, Uh, a brand new news story. And also, it, it turns out from Joe Biden's uh, announcement, if you read it carefully, he said, well, actually, our intelligence people have been looking into this. Various agencies, uh, Avril Haines sits atop of all of that, and she made a statement saying, our people have been looking into this, and they're split on that. Two of our agencies said, well, yes, it might have come from a lab, but three others, are, others said no. So because of it, apparently there's a division in the intelligence community, Combined with the lack of transparency and the concerns right away about that, it's back in the news.
0: So, is the World Health Organization interested in 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 asking more questions, considering their role in the initial investigation? And how do they feel about what Joe Biden is up to?
3: Uh, I'm sure that they're saying what they said at the time, only more uh, <laughs> more strongly. They they've not been coming out and saying, hey, Joe said this yesterday, so here's what we're saying today, as I have so far detected. But I think they would concur with the need for transparency and more cooperation. But keeping in mind, they were not allowed in. Nobody was allowed in for months after the initial reports, which had there was plenty of time for uh, China to clean up that lab if there was, uh, if there was some kind of a leak.
0: That's uh, my next question here, is the longer this goes... Uh, Is it harder and harder to prove origin?
3: You get into technical issues here. Apparently, they took some samples, but they didn't release those samples. Are those samples of blood still available? Could they be processed? Remember, uh, a couple other things. China has said, uh, we want to control the narrative on this. And here's our narrative. We reported it early. We We did the genome. We processed the genome. We released it to the world so that... You know the vaccines could later be developed, including their own, and uh, we have taken actions at home and now we are global leaders, and everybody should be praising us but the uh, the other side of that, which is not getting uh, sufficient attention, is that China uh, has also, like Russia recently been accused of major cyber hacks leading to the question in the West, uh, leading to the question, did they release the genome and then hack into the global networks to find out what was discovered by other researchers. The uh, the evolving image of China in the world, which comes simultaneously, but now with great uh, urgency over the COVID crisis, I think that's the big story here.
0: So it, it seems there's two different approaches here, because uh, initially uh, it was thought that, and again, not that this isn't the case, um, but this is what is under investigation, that this came from a wet food market, from uh, one host to another, and then from there to a human being. Then there's the theory that this came out of a lab. Uh but there's sort of a splits theory there in the sense that uh were they working on uh this type of coronavirus and that sort of thing that that spreads this way and then accidentally somebody got sick and then spread it out into the food market and then the other debate within the lab is or was this artificially created? Is that accurate?
3: Yes, plus a third. <laughs> Go ahead. They Possibly, were indeed doing what their job is, which is to keep track of pandemics and right. anything like this. Is, you know, this is a SARS type infection, which, <laughs> which swept the world earlier, and that somebody captured a bat, brought it into the lab to test it, and that, that and it was indeed positive, and that was actually the actual origin. But the bat then escaped and got back out into the wild. Man. Yeah, so that's, and now there's an old abandoned mind, which is being mined in China. Yeah, I heard about that. On, so, so
0: has there so, been anything to suggest that this is bio-warfare? Is there any, or is this just sloppiness in a lab trying to study something that is an issue
3: there? No, I, I this takes us to why there's been so much controversy all along. Uh, the, the Trump administration made a partisan political issue out of a public health crisis and because of the many issues that then arose it became such so difficult to accept at face value the theories coming out even from the white house itself but then more fringe groups like those who might say biowarfare that it all got discounted so the whole lab escape uh, thesis was really discounted for a very long time until you know this past few weeks although House, uh, the House Intelligence Committee has been investigating, I mean, it's been quietly investigated by the intelligence services. The fact that it was such a partisan political issue led to, the, to you know, Twitter and, and the other major media people, Facebook, saying, we aren't even going to carry stories that this was a lab escape. Yeah. Let alone bio-warfare. Now they're saying, well, you know, I guess we have to now carry stories. The, the point is, it became so politicized, Scott. It became difficult to accept hmm. the what is now seen as a valid line of concern, let alone far uh, uh, the, these fringe theories that it was a deliberate bio warfare. Uh, that that's just nonsense.
0: But don't and don't we already know that it was not artificially made? It was not man-made. It it, it created it naturally.
3: Well, I'm not a scientist but anything yeah. i've read about this suggests that uh no vaccines have been developed based on a genome from you know an actual uh an actual virus so uh covid-19 so th- there's no nothing i've read or heard as a political scientist keeping my antenna up uh, i've not heard anything along those lines so
0: what is biden hoping to accomplish here
3: i think he wants to lay this to rest uh, that's one possibility. I mean, the, the most likely is he's president of the United States. This has come back uh, into the public domain through the Wall Street Journal article. And uh, besides that, the House keeps working on it. And he does get the intelligence reports. And apparently the intelligence reports had enough in it to trigger his concern. But, you know, as a political scientist, you can also raise, as China is doing uh, separately, the U.S. is in a major long-term battle really for the future of the world with China or in Russia in a subsidiary more subsidiary way this is certainly fits a um, a convenient um part of a struggle against China to say that China may be hit, have been very remiss so is this part of a pressure campaign by covid to to position the us to talk about China, and, I, and you, as you will, you know, started at the, at the top, and China says, oh, yeah, well, what about your chemical warfare facility that you have there? And all states, uh, seem, major states, seem to have chemical warfare facilities. So it's, don't don't point a finger at us. So is this being caught back up into geopolitics at some level? But I think the more immediate and actual and real pressing concern is we have a public health crisis. Uh, COVID is, you know, we're... We're in this weird situation where, oh, we, 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 don't, we can relax now. The vaccines are working. Oh, no, our, heart, our hospitals are flooded. And uh, there's a province in Canada that's just being overwhelmed right now and so forth. So we are in the strange situation of having a global pandemic that probably did originate, well, did originate in China. And what about the future and what kind of cooperation are we going to get out of this China? Not, not China, but the, the Xi Jinping China. Uh, What kind of cooperation will we get going forward? Uh, Do you
0: think we will, uh, even at this late date, get to the bottom of this? Will China be able to create enough confusion that there'll be people saying that you can't prove this either way? What does China owe the world here?
3: I think China does owe the world a whole lot more transparency um, in its cooperative efforts, keeping in mind that you know, Tony Blinken has laid it out that, that going forward, there's going to be cooperation, competitiveness, and basically containment um, with China. So you can comp- you cooperate on some things, you compete on others, and you really have to push back uh, in a in a cold war kind of sense. The kind of cooperation needed from China on this and any other issues relating to you know public health, all kinds of fundamental research. This is a major power that has the capacity as a cooperative partner in the world to be a real contributor. And I guess that's really the crux of this argument, Scott. To what degree will China make the choice to be a cooperator on areas of mutual concern and benefit? And to what degree do we have to continue to distrust the kind of role that they are playing? And we can't enter, uh, end this interview today without pointing out we are at Day 899 yeah. of the two Michaels being held as hostages in a Chinese jail.
0: Uh, you know, despite all of the geopolitics that's going on here, at the end of the day, uh, the world has been crippled by COVID-19. Can China deny that?
3: Huh. Um, they have been denying it. They've been saying we acted... Basically, uh, I think we talked about this maybe a year ago saying there's competing narratives and China has won the narrative war that the U.S. under Trump was trying to put out a narrative that wasn't sustainable and China was putting out really uh, a non-sustainable narrative, but it got away with it that they have acted in an exemplary uh, fashion as a global citizen and they are now moreover willing to help the world with the vaccine developed by China. Uh, the, The whole question of can they continue to avoid the blame may well be behind will this latest inquiry you know 90 days now in a who if they are still basically to, into blame avoidance and uh, the president of the united states has already said we may never know we may never know
0: what about life in china now not only in regard to uh, the disease but also where where is the citizenry's heads in regard to this government?
3: Well, let's stay strictly on this story. Uh, there are reports that people inside China who criticized the government last, well, before March actually, last December, uh, saying the government has, you know, Xi Jinping has really blown this. Uh, they've disappeared. The, hmm. the The initial scientist who reported it uh, actually died of COVID. But citizen journalists and respectable voices uh, disappeared. So how are people handling this? I would think very cautiously. The, the basic social contract with the public right now is that the Xi, Xi, Xi Jinping government will continue to deliver for them, uh, but if you misbehave, they'll do something to you. So the, the world's largest country in terms of population and arguably the number one or number two economy and with a lot going for it in so many ways, is still under the control of the Communist Party of China. And that, in turn, is under the control of Xi Jinping, who is fostering a very truculent um, uh, set of behavior, patterns of behavior, which are increasingly, in all kinds of ways, drawing into suspicion their behavior. Uh, At home, their social contract is... Will deliver the goods and, and you put up with uh, other things, uh, the surveillance economy and uh, a society. But if they no longer can deliver the goods, at some point, if this regime falters, then I suspect that kind of social contract will break. The, a huge middle class has been created, it's media savvy, connected to the world. How long do they want that kind of government which uh, controls them but delivers for them? When it doesn't deliver, the control aspect will come to the fore.
0: How long do you let your population slowly increase their critical thinking before it becomes a threat to the actual party itself? Um, how is China? Is China concerned? How concerned is China? Are they afraid of what this Biden investigation may uncover? I don't. What if, uncovered, what if it uncover? What uh, if it Could it uncover something that is even more detrimental?
3: The fact that Joe Biden is saying. We have conflicting intelligence, and we're, we're giving 90 days to everybody, our intelligence communities, and therefore that would include the Five Eyes, that's us. <laughs> uh, you have 90 days to come up with a definitive answer. Uh, if that definitive answer did come out, saying that China is, can be held responsible and that can be demo- demonstrated, uh, it would be a major inflection point in the, in the uh, global geopolitics, but it's even more importantly in terms of our our global health uh, systems as they go forward.
0: Elliot Tepper with us, emeritus professor, political science, Carleton University. As always, Elliot, uh, Elliot, thank you so much for the time. Be well.
3: And to you. Take care. Here's today's daily
0: commentary. Provincial NDP leader, Andrea Horvath, again reiterated the wacky claim that Doug Ford is somehow responsible for Ontario's third wave of the COVID-19 global pandemic. With all due respect, is there a province in Canada that has avoided some sort of third wave? Or is Doug Ford responsible for all that too? Dr. Bonnie Henry of BC announced their emergency break lockdown is ending and their plans to reopen, as Ontario did earlier last week. Unlike the Maritimes and Manitoba, who are adding more strict measures, including Nova Scotia, who are debating keeping the schools closed for the rest of the year. So who is doing it right? Quebec, who has had the most COVID deaths of any province despite having a much lower population than Ontario? Doug Ford is easy pickings for those looking to pile on his less than polished performance. But if you compare Ontario to other provinces, we're all basically in the same situation due to Canada's slow vaccine arrival trying to fight off deadly variants from outside the country while waiting for a lack of vaccine to finally arrive here. That has not been the province's doing. That job falls on Justin Trudeau, who has left the provinces to deal with the mess due to a lack of timely vaccines. Too bad Doug Ford isn't as flashy and fashionable as Justin Trudeau. Or maybe not. I'm Scott Thompson. Let's bring in Michael Tobe, Troy Media Syndicated Columnist, contributor to the Washington Times and former speechwriter for Stephen Harper, talking about opening strategies across the country. Michael, thanks for the time. Hope you're well
4: yeah i am how are you doing
0: sorry about that i think we uh, knocked you off the air there so your thoughts on the different approaches we're starting to see all of the provinces announce their uh their reopening plans uh it seems doug ford can do nothing right during this that he is responsible for the third wave in ontario your thoughts on what's happening across the country which people in ontario seem to be oblivious
4: to Yeah. Well, no, look, as I was trying to say before, I think I agree with you that all the provinces have handled it differently and no one has been perfect. In fact, when you I agree with you and I've said this, too, when you start pointing fingers at a particular example of a province that's either doing well or doing poorly, I I just think it's a mug's game at best, because unfortunately, as we've learned with COVID-19, things can change in a dime very, very fast. And you use the a good example that there's just a lot of misinformation that's out there, too. And I've heard the same thing of people who have said that B.C. schools, you know, were open during this whole time when, in fact, they've been shut for an enormous amount of time in that province, which, again, is no failure of their own. It's just, unfortunately, many of the realities that we're dealing with one way or the other. Um, in terms of Ontario... You know, it's nice for people or certainly critics of Ontario Premier Doug Ford to start to suggest that the third wave of the of COVID-19 or the coronavirus pandemic is all due to him, when in reality, a lot of it goes back to, and I've discussed this with you, and I've discussed it with others, and I know others have discussed it too, you have to really go back to the national vaccination plan and the way that it was all brought down by the federal liberal. That's where the issue comes into play. They were the ones who originally started up with a Chinese vaccine company last year, an an unknown one at that, or relatively unknown, called CanSino Biologics. Who you know, Canada thought would have sort of a, a maiden vaccination plan in this country that completely failed last August, to the point where the Prime Minister of this country and his Liberal caucus had to scramble around to get vaccines from. Pfizer, Moderna, AstraZeneca, et cetera, and get all those plans in place because we were actually lagging behind and falling behind. And for that reason, we've had difficulties with Pfizer, Moderna, and others in terms of supply, you know, partially because we're way back in the line and also partially because the demands on the various vaccine companies are enormous. But they're obviously going to prioritize the countries that went to them first and made those arrangements first rather than ones like Canada, who came not necessarily at the end, but somewhere in the middle or below. So a lot of that really started there. And yes, obviously, we know that in terms of our first doses of the vaccine, that things are obviously improving. We're well over 60% of the country now. The real issue is that in terms of full vaccination, we're only sitting at around, and I apologize, I'm not in front of the number, I think it's 4.8%. Yeah, actually puts us in the 90s in the world, according to our world and data, which is monitored by the University of Oxford in the UK and and is a respected site. The 90s means that we are well behind in terms of full vaccination of large companies, large countries, small countries, island nations, poor nations, etc. And that's not where a middle class power like Canada should actually be at all. So, no, Doug Ford obviously has made mistakes. All of the premiers provincially have made mistakes. All of our cities and mayors and otherwise have made mistakes. We know that no one is perfect, and that when we do a public inquiry and have our various reports and look at all the things we've done during COVID-19, the good, the bad, and the ugly will obviously present itself. But to blame Doug Ford for the third wave of the, of the pandemic is utter madness, whether or not you agree with what the Ontario Premier has done, whether you agree with some of his decisions, and you and I have talked about them, some of them were actually poorly brought out, including his temporary plan to close playgrounds, which obviously had no scientific research or medical research behind it, and to try to bring in temporary police powers, which was knocked down pretty fast. He's made errors, and he knows it, he's admitted it, as the other Premiers would also admit that they've made errors. But good heavens, he is not the the reason that we are in a third wave of this pandemic. Unfortunately, there's a lot more to it than that.
0: It just seems that we've spent more time blaming the provinces than we have blaming the prime minister. And yeah. really what's happened here, as you've said... Uh, there has been no vaccine or very little vaccine coming into the country until the month of May. So provinces have had to react and somehow clean up and, and uh, uh, clean up the mess and and get by with little or no vaccine and have to come up with policies like who gets it first, how long between doses, uh, what regions get locked down. These are all situations that the provinces have been put in because we simply do not have or did not have enough vaccine vaccine. And yet, you know, the prime minister seems to be waltzing to a, a majority. Well, all of the provinces are taking the hit for vaccine that he never delivered or delivered, did not deliver in a timely manner.
4: Well, that's the key. The federal government purchased and distributed the vaccines. And anyone who says otherwise on your program or any other radio or TV program or in newspapers, etc., is not only wrong, they're lying. It's always a national government who does that. In the UK, it was the national government that did it and distributed. In the United States, it was, you know, originally former President Donald Trump and now current President Joe Biden, who did the same thing. It starts at the top. Ergo, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is at the top, you know, (laughs) whether he should be or not, but that's more of an ideological statement on my part and a partisan statement on my part, but he is. The federal Liberal government is in power, so if you're looking at the issue to begin with, it comes down to what vaccines were purchased and how they've been distributed. The provinces, again, have obviously made errors. The cities have made errors. Our towns, our villages, all of them have made mistakes. No one is blameless in this whole thing. But for the federal Liberal government, as you correctly alluded to, Scott, to start suggesting that it's all the provinces part, when the you have to look for failure at the top of the spectrum, which is the federal government, it's just utter madness.
0: And, you know, Michael, we were having every single one of these debates after the first wave, after the second wave, and then again in the third wave. Yep. Why? lack of vaccination and again the government's you know promoting that because we've shot more people with their first shot that now we're ahead of the united states in as far as first shots but as 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 you point out uh, and again the numbers in regard to the US and i know they're over 50% now but but also the the uh the gap between those that have been vaccinated once and twice is, or once and twice is like 10% whereas here it's like 4%. So again we're 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 doing high fives like we finished and it's like how can we compare ourselves to the United States when those people that we're seeing in stadiums who have been vaccinated have had it twice
4: yeah, exactly. Now, look, obviously we should be pleased with the fact that the first doses or that, that more Canadians are getting them and at a, yes. at a faster pace. That's great. And no one is saying that everyone from Ottawa down to the very bottom shouldn't be proud of themselves for that. They should be happy. We should be congratulatory. We should be praising ourselves. However, when, when then we start to say that all of a sudden we're ahead of the United States and we're rounding the corner and everything's getting better, No. If only 4.8 percent of the Canadian population is fully vaccinated at this point, anyone hoping for uh, a return to normalcy, whatever that new normal becomes, any time before like the late fall, early winter, you're dreaming. You're completely dreaming. We are nowhere near where we should be. And if we, if Canada had not wasted their time with cancino Biologics from China and not had to scramble around for various vaccines, and not basically had all these problems that we've had, which we don't have to go through the whole laundry list of, Canada would be further ahead, not only in terms of first doses, but in terms of full vaccination. I'm not saying we'd necessarily be at the level where um, the U.S., the U.K., Israel, and other countries are at, but we'd be much further ahead than we are right now. So it's nice for the federal liberals and their friends and their allies to pat themselves on the back for it. And yes, we are moving faster towards getting back on that route to whatever the new normal is. We are not anywhere near where we should be. So quite honestly, the fact that more people got sick and that there were more deaths, that is unfortunately due to the fact that Ottawa handled the situation terribly, terribly from the very start.
0: Uh, So Alberta opening up too soon, considering where they are, in your opinion? Mm -hmm.
4: Look, every province is obviously handling it differently. Alberta, B.C., Ontario, and others all have three-pronged strategies, and they're handling things rather differently. Alberta is moving a little bit faster than Ontario. There's no question of that. I believe they're stage one, um, which I'm not seeing in front of, but I believe for Alberta it's 50% vaccination of, of adults and children 12 years of age and older which is a little faster than Ontario, where our phase one is 60%, and it's mostly just for adults because the approval for children has only recently come in. Um, I think in the end, ultimately, Alberta has to handle things the way they see fit, as Ontario has to handle things the way they see fit, and BC and others. I don't think they're necessarily going faster. I think they're trying to sort of use it as in... The fact that, yes, we've had issues, yes, our, our daily COVID-19 cases, our active cases, deaths, et cetera, have obviously been very frustrating and have peaked at certain points. But I think they're also looking towards, you know, parts of the United States, parts of the UK and otherwise, that when the vaccines come in and those first doses are done, you can then start sort of moving back into or re-entering some sense of normalcy or back to normal life. So I don't know which the better method is. I mean, obviously, in Ontario and including the city I'm in, Toronto, there have been so many things that have been shot from restaurants to barbers and whatnot that it's been incredibly frustrating for people out here, although most people are obviously respecting the rules. I think in the end, if Alberta feels comfortable that way, that's what they'll do. If B.C. feels comfortable doing it differently, that's what they'll do. And if Ontario feels more comfortable moving at a slower pace, say, than Alberta, then in the end, ultimately, that's what their choice is.
0: Michael Tobe, Troy Media syndicated columnist, contributor to The Washington Times, former speechwriter for Stephen Harper. Michael, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. You too. Take care. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900CHML. Lots of chatter uh, in and amongst this uh, global pandemic. And lots of stuff sort of gets tossed to the to the side uh, sidelines, and a lot of it just doesn't get attention uh, because we are in the middle of a global pandemic, or less, at least let's hope towards the end. Uh, but a Bloc Quebecois motion seeking support for Quebec's proposed constitutional amendments failed to pass unanimous, unanimously in the House of Commons on Wednesday. Uh, to talk more about this, Henry Jasek is with us, professor of political science, McMaster University, and he is with us now. Henry, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. I sure am. Thank you, Scott. So explain to those of us who've been too caught up with COVID-19 to know what's going on here. Uh, talk about these proposed constitutional amendments.
1: Well, the, um, the government of Quebec right now wants to uh, put itself out as a champion for French uh, rights and to extend, uh, in a formal way, a number of symbolic uh, uh, statements and issues that uh, will seem to entrench French and protect Fr- the French language. Um, they want to uh, make some uh, changes in the Canadian Constitution that are primarily symbolic, about uh, having uh, having uh, Quebec recognized as being a uh, a, uh, a, fr- a nation and being a distinct nation, and the, and the language of that nation is French. Um, this is not too much more than what you know people recognize actually has occurred and the uh, federal government uh, in 2006 passed uh, a motion uh, saying that we recognize Quebec as a uh, distinct nation so that that's been the uh, that's the thing that Quebec wants to do but they want to put it in the federal constitution uh, at this point and in, and and there's a big debate as to what what the consequences of this will be and uh, it's uh, you know there's a lot of disagreement as to what that might be.
0: So why are constitutional experts concerned? What are those consequences?
1: Well, some of them are, well they get very worried about whenever there's any changes in the constitution because uh, oftentimes uh, changes in wording in the constitution lead to other things, and um, that hasn't. It's a very unclear where where this would go. There's there's two possibilities. One is which we know that the. Um, Uh, The the, uh, English language uh, population in Quebec is not treated equally with the French population in terms of government services, even though it's supposed to be, but it's something that everybody pretty much expected, uh, or has accepted, sorry uh and uh, the, certainly people who are worried about the position of the Eng, English uh, minority in Quebec they're worried about this is just another uh, limitation that's going to be put on them and probably uh, <clears throat> a good reason not to have uh, the services they receive uh, are uh, at the present time they, they're worried about them being diminished um uh, that hasn't been talked about too much except that Trudeau has said while he, while he has no objection to what the Quebec government wants to do, he did say that uh, at the end of his uh, dis- uh, statement he made on that a day or so ago, that essentially, of course, we will always protect the rights of uh, minorities in, in uh, minority language groups across, uh, uh, across Canada, and that includes the English speakers in Quebec. So he, he, he said that he didn't look very comfortable when he said that, but, but he knew he had to say that that he can he can't see, be seen to abandoning them uh, probably a, a more an, uh, another problem but not so much his is more the conservative problem is that there's a lot of people out west uh who essentially don't like the idea of Quebec getting any more uh privileges or things that other other provinces don't uh have or they just have a gut reaction against this and there is talk of a uh, new party being f- uh, putting forth candidates in the upcoming federal election called the Maverick Party. And uh, there are some uh, con- people in the Conservative Party are saying if that happens, then uh, a number of the rural seats in Alberta and maybe uh, uh, in the other uh, prairie provinces would go to uh, this Maverick Party and really badly damage the Conservative Party of Canada.
0: Uh, rather than go off on a tangent on maverick parties, let's get back to the, the point here. Why did this not pass? Why did Jody Wilson-Raybould reject this? Uh, what does this say?
1: Well, I mean, constitutional experts, as I said, are really very worried about where this is going to lead. And I think probably, although they haven't talked about it, I think they are worried about the the English speakers uh, in in. Uh, in Quebec, especially the provision that all new uh, immigrants coming into Quebec, people moving into Quebec, have to uh, uh, learn and be fluent in French within six months of arrival. Uh, that, I think, bothers, uh, bothers uh, you know, peop- those people. They see that as, as maybe one of the, uh, in, you know, uh, outcomes of this particular uh, uh, gambit by the provincial government.
0: How come she seems to be the only politician that is speaking up on this?
1: Well, the, uh, well, who has been a liberal. Uh, the, the conservative politicians in the West are, are concerned about this. Yeah. There are even people in uh, you know, O'Toole's caucus, his, his uh, critic uh, for health, uh, who is from that area, has, just, has taken a very different position than O'Toole. Uh, O'Toole doesn't seem to be greatly worried about this, but this, uh, his health uh, critic certainly does.
0: Um, so what would be the difference before and after this law passes? What, because, again, many would say, aren't we already there? They're already a distinct society. What's, what's different now? How much more push do you have to have here?
1: Well, a lot of this is symbolic. I mean, it is a fact. I mean, we, we know what the facts are in Quebec. Uh, these have been acknowledged by the, by the federal parliament, but they haven't been inserted into the Constitution. So, although the federal parliament says, oh, "Of course, Quebec is a distinct nation," uh, but it hasn't been put into the into the constitution. So the the premier of Quebec says, well, "Okay, we want it in the constitution now," and so it doesn't change anything except that it makes it obviously gives it more power and force. And then some, you know, lawyers may try to use it to extend certain type of powers to, to the Quebec government. So are
0: politicians using this, Henry, to try to win Quebec? Yeah, yeah, we'll give them what they want, because both all of them want to win Quebec.
1: Well, they're, they're fearful. I mean, they're all fearful. Justin Trudeau is fearful, uh, because he doesn't want to lose support among the Francophones in Quebec. And, of course, the other parties, the Conservative Party and the uh, uh, NDP uh, and the Greens, is uh, are all no, none of them are objecting to this? We, they all expect we are going to have an election in October, and they don't want to alienate you know Quebec Quebec voters. Now there are 75 seats in Quebec. Not all of them are you know majority French population, but that's that's where there is a lot of seats that are like that. And and everybody is now walking on all the federal leaders are walking on you know on, on sharp glass here, trying not to cut themselves.
0: So, if this all goes through, it, it, it will officially make Quebec a non-bilingual province, will it not? Uh, well, quite frankly, uh, in, in some ways, that's been happening. It's already the case. So, that's let me actually, ask you this, been, Henry.
1: That's been the social fact, I think. Yeah.
0: So, let me ask you this. If this is sort of the final straw and it's like, that's it, it is a French nation, whichever way you want to call it, mm-hmm. uh, why is the rest of the country bilingual if Quebec isn't even respecting that?
1: yeah well the the reason because I, I think basically why this has all happened is because Quebec is a, the French uh, is, is a, um, increasingly becoming a smaller and smaller part in terms of population uh, in in the country, and also a lot of the younger people really don't in Quebec, French speakers, really don't see this as a major problem, a major issue, and demographically. They, the, you know, they, the Quebec families are now very small uh, in terms of the birth rate, and so the, the long-term look, if you're somebody who wants to maintain a French presence in Quebec, the, the future demographically doesn't look very good that slowly over time that the, this, the, the French population will become smaller and smaller.
0: That's immigration, is it not, Henry?
1: Immigration, but it's also the young Quebecers. There's a lot yeah. of young Quebecers at some. No, point. but I guess
0: my point that I was making here, Henry, is that's Canada. I mean, you yeah. know, I mean, and is this right. is this is this a valid point here for Quebecers, or is this a way to preserve your colonial culture? And why is that good for this province, but racist for everyone else?
1: Well, I don't think the the I don't at least not explicitly, I mean, the French, the Quebec government is not, you know, saying anything negative about our British, you know, heritage here in the rest of the country. But I mean, of course, people, you know, certainly uh, who, who, who value that, who uh, essentially say, well, that is, you know, we are privile- privileging the, you know, the French culture, the French, that, that heritage, but, you know, but then yeah. we're not privileging the, the the major one, which is the British one.
0: We're canceling all other cultures, but Quebec's keeping theirs. How does that work?
1: Yeah, well, we're, we're canceling, we're certainly canceling a, a lot of the, uh, everybody else except uh, English and French. It, it's just that French, Quebec has, does not have the power in Canada, essentially, and the French, French community to really make any serious inroads on the, on the British culture, our heritage, and our English language. They just, they just can't do it. Pe- pe- every, I think pe- people throughout Canada recognize... To be successful, we have to, be speak, we have to speak fluent English. We, the world operates in English, and that includes Canada, and we all have to accept that.
0: So where is this going, Henry, and how will the PM use this, or how will this hinder him in you know, his seek for an election?
1: I think he wants to try to uh, keep the issue as low-profile as possible and not antagonize the, the Quebec premier. And the premier will probably try to do something else here. I mean, he's, a, he's in the driver's seat right now. He knows Trudeau is vulnerable, and he's, he's essentially going to try to find something, uh, some way to uh, antagonize uh, Trudeau and have him make a statement that will get, make the, uh, the uh, French-speaking population unhappy. And then he would lose some some support he might otherwise have and maybe have a minority government. It, from the point of view of the Quebec government, probably it is in their interest to have a minority government continue in, in, Quebec, in uh, Ottawa and to keep, you know, certainly the liberals from, from having that majority. And so this is, this, is, this is in their interest, and I think, uh, you know, I think uh, they're going to keep playing this. Trudeau's going to try to dodge it, and uh, it just depends on what, what fights become more interesting and come to our attention. I think the bigger problem is for the conservatives out west and their... Uh, and their, and their, uh, you know, their, their rural uh, group who, who, you know, who are essentially are going to be unhappy about what's all, all this uh, giving in to Quebec as they see it.
0: Uh, so will this pass? Is Jody Wilson-Rabel the only one that's going to speak out against this? Where does that go? Well,
1: the, uh, it's, it's, I, I don't think the federal government's going to do anything about this before the election. They will find a way to delay this, and if they get their majority... Um, Trudeau will be able to point to the fact uh, that, well, I did tell you we're not going to do anything that's going to uh, you know, hurt uh, the, the, the rights of the English speakers in Quebec. And so I think he'll have a very different tune after the election if he has a majority. But even if he has a minority, I'm, I'm sure he probably would do that. But what he has to do is somehow try to you know, keep this issue from exploding before the election. And that's uh, that that's the that's the job that he has to do with this, I think.
0: Henry Jasek with us, professor of political science, McMaster University, talking about changes, uh, constitutional changes, proposed uh, constitutional changes uh, coming from Quebec. Henry, thanks for the time. As always, much appreciated. Be well.
1: Okay, same to you now,
0: Scott. Vaccination supply has been a huge problem for Canada. That is why we are where we are and starting so late. Uh, we certainly have, uh, withheld the second dose, allowing more to get the first dose, which has, uh, really pushed us forward. However, uh, we're still very, very far behind when it comes to administering the second dose. And all of this comes back to the lack of production here in Canada and us having to rely on other centers in order to get our vaccines. And we've seen a mass increase coming in in May, uh, up until that pretty much a trickle. Uh, and that is as other, uh, places Places like the UK and and the United States uh, finish off, or certainly get to the point where uh, they're over the fifty percent mark. Uh, so now more and more coming in, uh, but what did we have to pay to get those? And it seems at this point, Pfizer has been the most consistent. What are we paying? What is the market value here? Uh, and really, uh, questions like that have not been answered to this point. Let's bring in Dr. Jillian Kohler, Kanat Scholar and Professor with the Leslie Dan Faculty of Pharmacy, Dalla Lana School of Public Health and Monk School of Global Affairs, Public Policy at the University of Toronto, and is with us now. Doctor, thank you for the time. Hi. I hope you're doing well.
2: I am. How are you?
0: I'm doing good, thank you. So, obviously, in the month of May, we're starting to see the vaccines, uh, the supply increase. We're seeing more and more Canadians vaccinated as of uh, as a result of this. Uh, Pfizer seems to be the most consistent. Do we have any idea what we're paying per
2: dose for, for these? Uh, the short answer is absolutely not. Um, and, in fact, I just completed a study with colleagues who are working with Transparency International in the United Kingdom, And that was one of our major concerns, is that we were advocating for more transparency in terms of the contracts that are happening between governments and vaccine suppliers. And while we did get access to some data, it was very, very limited.
0: So why would we not have those, considering other jurisdictions are providing that information? I mean, and the fact that we are not being told, are we to assume from that that we're overpaying for these?
2: Well, that's a good question. And, I, I mean, I, again, I would say we don't know because we haven't we haven't seen the, the contents. What I would say, though, is that this is not unusual. So just to go back to some of the data that we found, we were looking at 182 agreements between various governments around the world and different suppliers who had vaccines um, in the pipeline, and we only got access to 13 agreements. So less than 6% of those were actually made public. And what was really interesting, even in the ones that were made public, there was a lot of information that was hidden or redacted. So lots of black lines for those uh, the listeners who aren't familiar with what that means. So really, this information is concealed. We did find out, though, that just generally looking through some UNICEF data, high-income countries are actually spending per contract less than upper-middle-income countries. Um, so we're at probably, I mean, again, these numbers are not accurate, please. They're just kind of guesstimates, but about $6.26 U.S. dollars for high-income countries. So we're in that bundle. Uh, $6.72 in upper-middle-income countries, we're paying more at $7.81. But please remember, these numbers are just guesstimates.
0: I'm sorry, Doctor, but you just cut out as you were saying those. You, so could you repeat that line one more time, please?
2: Sure, yeah. So... What we found only through looking at UNICEF data is that high income countries are actually paying less per contract for a vaccine than upper middle income countries. So, and low income, uh, low income countries are paying a little less than that. So for example, we're paying probably about $6.26 US dollars we're in that bundle, um, where, um, an upper middle income country would be paying something like $7.81. So it was just strange that countries that seem to be um, at a lower level of economic development are paying more for vaccines than richer countries.
0: Uh, and what about the cost of the uh, of these vaccines when you compare them? I am, I'm uh, under the understanding that Pfizer and Moderna are more than, say, AstraZeneca and J&J. Yeah,
2: again, the thing about the pharmaceutical industry is we don't know what the actual costs are. So that's that is Of the issue here. We're dealing with products that have been supported largely through public funding. Vaccines are what we would call a global public good. They have an impact for everyone, everywhere. So the question is why don't we know more about what the costs are? And also, in terms of what you were saying earlier, the supplies, why don't we know what's happening in Canada in terms of how many doses we're expected to get? When, how, what did we pay, and what can we expect in terms of potential bumps, which we've been experiencing from the get-go?
0: are we paying more to be you know you've heard terms like the wild west you know when it comes to ppes and such and and we know that there's obviously a a world shortage of vaccine despite some countries awash in it Uh, so are we paying more to make up for our lack of production are we now obligated to pfizer as a result of this are we making deals that will affect us in the future
2: um, again, I can't talk to you about what we're paying. We don't know what we're paying. So that, yeah. that goes back. I think what, the, what is at focus here is also the fact that we are respecting companies' right to make profit. So we have something called intellectual property rights, which are being upheld. If we got rid of those, if we bypassed them, which we saw during the HIV-AIDS crisis for anti retroviral drugs, then more countries around the world could make vaccines and more people could get access to vaccines
0: um we certainly know what the position canada was in when this first started and the scramble on to to buy the portfolio and such uh would big pharma be using this as leverage i mean none of these people uh uh, seem to have uh a presence in canada is this a way of negotiating that presence in the future again i'm sure i'm asking you questions you can't answer i'm just asking for your opinion
2: yeah i know fair enough i mean here is my opinion we are in uh Uh, kind of imbalance of power. The government of Canada is an imbalance of power vis-a-vis these pharmaceutical companies for the simple fact that you mentioned is that we are not manufacturing our own. We don't have our own public manufacturing capabilities that could actually help support getting better access of vaccines to Canadians. Um, So we are basically at the mercy of private sector interests. And while I am fully aware that we are, you know, should be grateful for the research and development and the fast pace of getting access to a vaccine. At the same time, we need to be rethinking this model. Why are we upholding private pharmaceutical company profits over public health? That to me is a really serious uh, issue.
0: Uh, Governments don't make vaccine private companies do. Are we doing enough to create an environment where we have that, capa- that production capacity and yet don't get taken to, uh, to the bank for lack of a better phrase by these big companies when this sort of thing, uh, you know, comes to fruition. Are we doing enough to partnership with these? Have we been, uh, conducive to big pharma and, and making and creating incentives for them to set up shop here?
3: Well,
2: again, I'm, I'm not saying that we need to always be working with big pharma. I think we need to have certainly manufacturing of vaccines. And I know that the government has announced that it is planning that at the end of this year or next year so that we have more health security. But at the end of the day, you know, again, um, should, the, should this not perhaps be more of a public initiative when we're talking about health security and relying on health security by turning to the private sector always carries risks and we're, we're seeing that you know today we've been seeing that throughout this pandemic um because we've been relying on supplies that are outside of our borders that are based on manufacturing capabilities that are in other countries and as a result of that you know we've been vulnerable
0: so um I, i'm just looking for a little clarification here Jul- uh, uh, Jul- uh jillian are we are, we look, are you looking to set up government-run vaccine facilities, or why not? is this why not? about... I, mean, I, I don't know why not. Um, is anybody else doing it?
2: Um, I mean, not now do we have the capability to do so, but what I would say is that this should not be... We should not be relying solely on the private sector for a public health good. And given that the private sector does rely on so much public funding for its research and development there needs to be a new model in place
0: yeah some and sort of partnership
2: yeah i mean that, again i can't give you a simple answer to a very complicated question yeah. it's a great question um and i don't want to say that it's something that can easily be done but i do think we need to rethink you know what we've been doing in the past why it hasn't been working and how we need to change that
0: you know, I agree wholeheartedly there should be a partnership. There should be some sort of working agreement with universities, with Big Pharma on this. But I'm not sure I want to give uh, the research and development of vaccines or anything like this, which is incredibly costly uh, to a government sole uh, responsibility. I, I, I'm not sure that's I'm not actually, a, yeah, a smart no, and again, thing to do. But I, I there has wanted... to be some sort of some sort of uh, you know combination, partnership.
2: Yeah, and again, I, I don't want to be misinterpreted. I wasn't yeah. actually advocating for that. So I, again, just to be make sure that we're on the same. So what case. is the but perfect system
0: pres- here then? What what are you advocating for? What would be what would what work I'm here? Do you adv- think?
2: Yeah. I mean, again, so just going back to the report that we just released this week, what we're advocating for right now in simple terms is better transparency. Yeah. So what we're asking governments to do is we're asking them to make public all their contracts with vaccine suppliers. We're asking them to make sure that clinical trial data. Is fully public as well. So for us, this would be a way to help generate better public trust in terms of the processes, in terms of the supplies, and lessen some of the anxiety, which has been so prevalent throughout you know, the past year or so. Um
0: it, it is is Canada a uh, a supporter of big pharma or are they going more the uh, generic drug route which obviously irritates big pharma do we have a position there
2: I think it depends and again I think you know we support so if you look at the policies, and again, mm-hmm. I don't want to put myself into a hole. by no no. no, 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 because I, I don't think that's actually a question that can be answered in, in one line for um, the purpose of this discussion. I think it I think it depends. But what I would say is ultimately we need to make sure as the government of Canada, I should say, need to make sure that we're not in a position that we've been through, which is the, of the pandemic, which has been to be vulnerable to global supply systems to not have manufacturing capabilities in our own borders and to really to be beholden to the private sector. So what does that take? I mean, again, there's many, you know, many different models out there, but what it does take is a change. And that's what I'm advocating for.
0: Do you think we will see that as a result of this global pandemic? Once this is behind us and we're analyzing how we all reacted to it, where do you see this going?
2: I would hope so. I mean, again, um, This isn't, unfortunately, a new situation. Um, We had some issues prior. Think back to the H1N1. Um, Let's hope we don't repeat the same mistake. So if this is not a wake-up call for the Canadian government, as well as governments globally, then I don't know what it will take, because this this is massive, this is unprecedented, and we need to rethink things. I think we also need to rethink how the pharmaceutical industry is able to protect its own markets and what that means for public health. And why are we kind of allowing the same old same old to happen when we're dealing with a global crisis, which we have today? And, you know, let's not forget, so many people around the world do not currently have access to COVID-19 vaccine. So we should be doing everything in our power to make that happen
0: uh obviously this is uh, coming back around to uh, uh, being uh, self-sufficient and being able to produce our own as opposed to purchasing them. What about uh, local Canadian companies that are involved in this? We've interviewed Pro- Providence Therapeutics many times and say that you know when this all started they were uh, at even par with moderna and Pfizer but needed more support to to get things off the ground. Are we paying too much attention to the Pfizer's of the world and not enough to the Providence Therapeutics?
2: Yeah, I think we, I mean, honestly, I mean, this goes back to my original point. We don't want to be vulnerable to um, not having our own capabilities locally, whatever that means, whether it's a public-private mix, whether it's having our own companies that can give us the supplies that we need. So, that will require a shift in terms of investment strategies and how we you know, currently deal with you know, potential providers of medicines and vaccines for future crises or even just general health needs of our population.
0: Uh, so are the countries at the mercy of the pharmaceutical companies, are they the ones that are keeping this information secret? Is, is that where the lack of transparency is or is it with governments?
2: It's a bit of both. I mean, I think governments need to have the courage to say to companies, you know, we're not going to be doing the same old game over and over again. We're going to release this to our public. We're going to let them know what we're paying. Typically, what companies will argue is that it's, you know, not in their commercial interest to have this information leaked out. Um, They also might say to governments that if, you know, this is made public and we're giving you a good deal, we're going to be asked to give the same deal. Therefore, you know, it's not good for you in terms of your own allocation of funding to this. So there's there's many different ways that governments have been, as I said, in a kind of unbalanced uh, power relation with the pharmaceutical industry. And this needs to be this needs to be changed.
0: Uh, I want to ask you one more question. And again, I'm sure it's one that uh, we don't know the answer to. But uh, that being said, um, do you are you confident that we will have enough product coming in to administer that vital second dose to Canadians and keep this momentum going? Uh, And your thoughts of Canada taking vaccine from COVAX?
2: Yeah, well, I wrote an op-ed in the Globe and Mail a couple months ago, basically not supporting the fact that Canada was taking vaccines from COVAX. I will reiterate my point, that I, I don't agree with that, especially when so many uh, countries around the world are needing supplies. They don't have their own deals with pharmaceutical suppliers. In terms of looking forward, will we have enough vaccines? I mean, I would say, I don't know. We, we haven't seen the details of the contracts. We know that this is a very volatile supply system. It's also a supply system that can be affected by politics, and that can happen in a heartbeat. So I'm going to say I'm really hopeful. I'm really hopeful that we're going to get our supply. But at the end of the day, I don't think we can actually make strong, firm predictions. I think everything that we know is that we don't really know.
0: Jillian, do you think we will ever know uh, the answers to the questions you're asking, like price and, and what we're paying and seeing these contracts, even after this that's, is over?
2: That's, um, that's where I think there's been a lot of momentum globally. And I know that the WHO is actually working on initiatives related to pricing transparency with the pharmaceutical industry right now. Um, it's something that's being currently uh, discussed. So at the highest level of governments, I think this is becoming more of an issue for obvious reasons. I think given what's happening in terms of just public demand for information with, you know, again, it's so easy to get access to information these days. I think companies will be put on notice that the same old games don't, you know, just don't can't be played anymore and that they're going to have to shift. So I'm hopeful there have there has been headway in terms of better transparency in some ways. Um, we have a long way to go, but I think we're we're moving towards that. So I will be optimistic on that on that level.
0: Fascinating, Doctor uh, Jillian Kohler has been with us, cannot scholar, scholar and professor with the Leslie Dan Faculty of Pharmacy, University of Toronto. Doctor, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well.